So if you don't know, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. We are right now in a section where Jesus is being questioned. He's been coronated as king, and now comes the confirmation hearing where there's question after question after question given to Jesus. And we're going to pick it up, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So this is a group of people that have a certain religious bias. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's called the leveret marriage. It was a law in Israel. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Moral of the story, don't marry this woman. <laughs> I'm not saying, but it seems fishy. <laughs> In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living you are quite wrong. Woo! <laughs> what are they asking right here? What happens when you die? That's what they're asking, right? They're asking in a tricky kind of way. We'll talk about that. But really, it's that question. What happens when you die? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered I've done memorial services for babies and stared down at little three feet long caskets and wondered, God, what happens when you die? It's a question. These guys are asking that same question. And I think sometimes we fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where it's when we look back at ancient people like these guys, 2,000 years ago, we look back at them and we think uh, they were idiots. They would believe anything, right? They didn't know really where babies come from, so they would believe in a virgin birth. But we know better today. Oh, well, they didn't really understand death, that people that die mostly stay dead, so they would believe in a resurrection. Wait a second. These guys are questioning it. 
Just like we question it today, right? Like, here's what I would say. I think the ancient people were actually much smarter than we are today. That every generation were actually degrading in intelligence, but we're getting a lot more information. So we have access to information like no one has ever had before. So we think we're smarter, but I think actually ancient people were smarter. That we're really starting to lose it because of technology. Let me test you. Who here memorizes phone numbers now? Right? Why don't we do that anymore? Because it's on my phone. Why would I, right? We don't remember any phone number except maybe this one, 867530. Because it's a song and you can't forget it. Who here memorizes directions somewhere? No one does. If the internet goes down, we will get lost trying to go home. Ah, oh, man, where'd I live again? How about the fact guy? Growing up, there was always the fact guy. He had all the facts in the world. What happened to the fat guy? What happened to Mr. Fact Guy? Google killed him, right? I will be talking about something sometimes and I will see people pull out their phone and they're Googling like, I'm not sure about that, right? Checking the facts right now. At least I hope that's what they're Googling. Now, I think they were much smarter. They had skills that were losing more and more and more. We're outsourcing it to technology and history will decide whether that's a good idea or a bad. So they asked the big question, what happens when you die? A question we still ask to this day. Perhaps if you're reading the news, you saw this article. It came out a couple days before Easter. Brilliant on the author's part. And it's about near-death experiences. And it's the first peer-reviewed research paper on near-death experiences. I just took a Photoshop of the article that I was reading on the Oregonian, but... Um, that's it. And what they believe for a long time is these near-death experiences where people saw stuff, they were hallucinations. Well, this peer-researched paper says, uh-uh, it's not a hallucination. Something real is taking place. We just don't know what it is. Pretty amazing. Just a couple days ago, right? And one lady, she was like, Man, I was somewhere, it was so amazing. And then she said, it was like I was being sucked back into my body and I did not want to go back. So someone's there doing CPR on her, let's save her. No, let me go, right? Stop it. <laughs> what happens to us when we die? Well, let's, let, let's let the Bible speak here. So you've got verse 18, this group. The Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. These are the educated elites of society. They've got money, they've got power, they have positions, and they kind of play with religion in ways that was useful for them, right? So they've got their MDiv from Princeton or from Harvard, but they're not believers really. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe any of that stuff. No miracles, nothing. Kind of a dead orthodoxy, or I would say we would call it progressive Christians today. So progressive Christians, they have the Christian name, but they're always explaining away everything that we're supposed to believe in. So they explain away miracles. The one I just read recently was they were talking about 
Jesus walking on water. That Jesus didn't actually walk on water. What happened was this, there was this freak storm that hit that area of Galilee and it froze the water, created an iceberg and Jesus just kind of hopped on the iceberg and floated out like a polar bear. And then when Peter got out, he hit the iceberg for a second, slipped and fell into the water. See, it's that simple. I'm like, that's harder to believe than Jesus walking on water. I mean, that's nutty, right? They're always doing stuff like this. That the resurrection, Jesus wasn't bodily resurrected. It's a metaphor that, that the early disciples were talking about. Metaphoric rising from the dead, overcoming difficulty and injustice. And it's to give you hope. And it's just a metaphor. But even though it's just a metaphor, it has very important meaning for us today. It's just as meaningful as if he really did rise from the dead. I say, time out, buddy. Really? Would you rather have me give you a million dollars hard, cold cash or would you rather have me give you a million dollars metaphorically with a lot of meaning in my heart? <laughs> no, they're different, man. Okay? So that's this crew. That's this crew. Kind of progressive Christians. And what you have to back up at sometimes and say, well, what are we supposed to believe? What's required? So a couple of years ago, I saw this article and it was an interview between a progressive Christian. Her name is Marilyn Sewell. She's a Unitarian minister up in Portland, our own little hometown. Love Portland. So she was being interviewed by, or she was interviewing a guy named Christopher Hitchens. Now, if you are at all a reader, you know Christopher Hitchens, before he passed away, was called one of the four horsemen of atheism. So he is a top tier dude. Super witty, super bright, wrote a book called God is Not Good, How Religion Poisons Everything. So you kind of know his atheism. He's completely anti-God. What you may not know about Christopher Hitchens is he has a brother named Peter Hitchens, who's a born-again believer and an author as well, and wrote a book called Rage Against God about the four horsemen of atheism. I would love to go to a Christmas with those two guys. <laughs> Be so fun, man. So Hitchens is just a pit bull. He just, he does, he's not politically correct. He's one of those guys. So I thought this is gonna be an interview I've got to read. This is like a pit bull in a nursery. So let me just read for you the two sides, kind of what liberal Christians believe, progressive, and Christopher Hitchens, an atheist's response to her. Check this out. So Marilyn Sewell, quote, the religion you cite in your books is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. They're metaphors. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, listen to his answer. Quote, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Woo! 
man, like, okay, that's a pit bull. What are we supposed to believe? What Christopher Hitchens just said, that's what it is. So these Sadducees, Christopher Hitchens would say, yeah, you're really not believers. That's what you're not. So they come up with this idea, verses 19 and 23, that we're going to trick Jesus with this crazy scenario, with this rule that we have, that you gotta raise up offsprings for your brother, the woman, no offspring, seven dead husbands, right? It's to mock and to make Jesus look stupid. That's what they're doing here. Don't they do the same thing to us today? Oh, you believe in the devil? Does he have little horns and a red cape? And does he have a little pitchfork? And is he poking you in hell? Like, mm -mm, right? That's, they try to make caricatures just like us. Oh, you believe in angels and demons and the Holy Spirit? I bet you get a little fishy on your truck too. You're a fishy truck, aren't you? Right, that's what they do. They're, they're, it's exactly what they're doing here. They're trying to ridicule Jesus. What's really interesting to me is this. These guys were polygamists. So they had no problem with a guy marrying one, two, seven wives. So in heaven, they'd have no problem with a man with seven wives. But they can't imagine a heaven with a woman with seven husbands. Can you see that? Like, it's kind of ironic. Like, you're actually, you're actually just hypocrites. Okay, so what does Jesus say? Watch this. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What did Jesus just said? say? It's because you're stupid. I mean, that's what he said. You're stupid. You don't know God's word and God's power. These are the religious elites. They've got their Harvard MBAs. You don't know God's word and you don't know God's power. It'd be like telling a rocket scientist, yeah, you don't know physics. It'd be like telling Warren Buffett, you don't know finances. It'd be like telling Elon Musk, yeah, you don't understand cars. Like this is like, ha. And then Jesus says this. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Brilliant. So Jesus quotes from the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. Moses' books. He quotes from them. Here's why. The Sadducees did not believe in the entire Old Testament. The Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Bible were inspired by God. That the other 34 books were not inspired by God and not useful. By the way, if you go to a church and the pastor says, I don't believe this part of the Bible, I only believe this part of the Bible, run from that church. I'm dead serious, run, because he's headed this direction right here, okay? So Jesus quotes from the parts that they believe and he says this, remember what God said. He says, I am 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three of the patriarchs who had died. He didn't say, I was the God of them, but now that they're dead and they don't exist anymore, I'm not their God anymore. He says, I am present tense because they still exist. Such a brilliant answer. So I think there are three things that I want us to try to extract from this passage. First, the resurrection, the glimpse we get at it. Number two, God's word and God's power. Those are the two things that we should know according to Jesus right here. So first, the resurrection. Jesus makes it clear that when the resurrection happens, we're gonna be different. Things are not gonna be the same as down here. It'll be different. And he uses the, hey, you're not gonna be married in heaven. Just like angels don't need to reproduce because there's no death in heaven, you won't need that reproduction anymore. You're not going to be married in heaven. So in eternity, I will no longer be married to my wife, Charity. Now, for some of us in here, that makes us really sad. For others in here, it makes you really glad. <laughs> like, praise God, I can hold on. Come quickly, Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> the Sadducees, the reason why they did not want a resurrection, there's a reason behind this. Here's the reason. They feared a resurrection because they knew it could be very dangerous if people believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees were in power. They were the elites. They had it, man. They lived a high life. They were friendly with Rome, right? They did not want a group of people that rose up and believed because of the resurrection. They could live risky lives and dangerous lives because this was just a glimpse and the rest echoed on in eternity. They did not want that because it might ruin their gig. So they feared a resurrection and they should because how you believe will affect how you live. Do you know that? If you believe this is all there is, it'll, you'll live a very different life than a person that believes, no, this is just chapter one. It's an important chapter, but it's chapter one. It matters. And maybe the best book that kind of details this is a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Anyone read that? Viktor Frankl? If you have not read that book and you are a reader, it is a book you must read. Hopefully it's a book that can never be written again because Viktor Frankl was a survivor of multitude, multi, multiple Holocaust camps in World War II brutal. And he was a neurosurgeon, like super smart guy and a psychiatrist. So just amazing man. And he observed something in that book. And here's what he found. He found four different kinds of people during that incredible suffering. The first group of people, he called them those that jumped in. They would steal, they would betray, they would work for the Nazis. They would do anything required to survive. He called them capos. That was the first group. They jumped in. Number two, people that dried up. And he gives an example of one of them. You saw this multiple times. There was a man that believed in his heart that liberation was gonna come on the 30th of March. And he was telling everybody that. And it was his hope and he held on to it. And the 30th of March came and they weren't liberated. 
And the very next day he got sick and he died. That that hope that was keeping him, once it was not fulfilled, he had no reason to live and he just froze up and dried. The third group, he said they flamed out. They were the people that in the camp would be talking about life on the outside. I'm gonna get my family back. I'm gonna get my business back. I'm gonna get my prestige back. I'm gonna get my name back. And they had all these great plans for on the other side of the camp. But then they got out of the camp and the dreams didn't materialize the way that they thought they should and things weren't the way they were and they ended up becoming very depressed and often committed suicide. But there's a fourth group. He said, this is the group that just, they rose up. They were the heroes. They're the people that sacrificed. They're the ones that would share their food, help anyone. It did not matter. They would do everything possible to make that camp better. They were a brilliant group of people. And he said, the difference was this. They had a hope that transcended the camp. And here's his very famous, this is one of his most famous quotations, and it's this. Life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. What hope would that be? There is only one. It's the resurrection. And when you have that kind of hope, you will live dangerously. You will risk in the best way possible. I'll give you an example from a book that's brilliant, really old. It's called Missionary Reminiscence by Philip Henry Cornford. And it was written about a Jamaican plantation about 200 years ago. And on this plantation, there was a guy named Moses Hall that becomes a believer in Jesus, and he just starts to share Jesus with all the slaves there. And they all become believers in Jesus, and they start to pray and just seek God. And the masters got tired of it, so they wanted to stop it. So one day, this whole, all the slaves were called to this porch. And when they get there, the masters came out, and they pulled out that severed head of one of the slaves named David, and they set it on a post. And they begin to call out to Moses Hall, come up here. And he walks up and they say, do you know whose head this belonged to? And Moses Hall said, yes, David. Do you know why David lost his head? And he said, yeah, because he was praying. That's right. And they begin to say, you guys don't pray anymore. Now I'm gonna read you a quote from the book. Quote, this is the murderer. Mind from this time, let us have no more of your prayer meetings. For if we catch you at it, we shall serve you as we have served David, you had better take warning. I, all of you, whoever we catch at such things again, it matters not who it is, will serve you alike. Do you hear that, sir? Moses did hear it indeed. His whole soul quivered with excitement at every syllable. What could he do to bow in calm submission was equal to a sacrifice of his principles and a denial of his Lord. So suddenly, raising and clasping his hands, he kneeled down upon the earth immediately beneath the martyr's head, saying in a solemn voice, let us pray. And pray he did. And all the others joined him and they prayed for their murderer's salvation. And the murderers took off running. That's a power. 
That's a power. Oh, does it matter what you believe? Does it matter if it's a metaphor or not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The only way a Moses Hall stands before the severed head of his best friend and does the same thing is if he has a hope that transcends suffering and death. Oh, it matters. The resurrection matters. And I think I can prove to us that all of us in the deepest parts of our heart know there's a resurrection. For a moment, think. Why do you have all this kind of angst in you, stress, anxiety, worry to accomplish things in life? Why do you have that? Why do you put pressure on yourself to succeed in whatever area it is? Why? Why do you diet? Why do you exercise? Why do you take those pills for memory other than to remind yourself where your keys are at? Right? Why do we do that? Why do you do crossword puzzles? They're silly. Why do you do them? Why do you buy those new clothes that make you feel a little bit younger, a little bit better? You know why? Every one of us wants to last. We do not want to be a vapor that appears a short time and disappears. We don't want to be a dream at dawn that's forgotten when the sun comes up. All of us feel that. Every one of us. We want to last. All of us. We all are right here. I want to last. I want to matter. I want my life to matter. Why is that? Because it was built into us. None of us believes the circle of life. Remember that from the Lion King? That was the silliest thing in the world, right? Simba's talking to his dad like, dad, you know, we eat the deer. That doesn't seem fair. And his dad's like, oh, it is though. Because we eat the deer, but then one day we die and we go into the ground and then grass grows up from us and then the deer eat the grass. What's he saying? Simba, you're fertilizer. Yeah. Who says that in a memorial service? Yep, got some fertilizer here. He was organic, so it's good fertilizer. No one, no one does. Because we know in our heart of heart, we want to last. We want the resurrection. Jesus makes this clear, you will last. And how you live now echoes out into eternity. It's like a drop in a pond. That's all this life is. But the waves cascade out into the billions and billions of years. And depending on what I've done here, it matters for eternity. That's the resurrection. You will last. And what you do does matter. Number two, God's word. He says, you should know God's word to these guys. You should have known God's word. You should have known Exodus, the bush encounter. You should have known this. One of the criticisms that happens sometimes about Edgewater is people will say this. Well, all you guys do up there is study the Bible. I'm like, and? We're a church, for crying out loud. Oh, you're in a doctrine. And? Right? I'm not at your kid's birthday party trying to talk about Deuteronomy, right? Although I think I could, trust me. It's a church, like it's crazy to me. We should know the Bible. 
Christians should love, ooze, just when we get poked, the Bible should come out. That's what should happen to you and me, right? We should love it. Not our opinions or methods or our culture or this book. We should love the Bible. And what I've seen in churches is this. They'll go in cycles. Like they'll be, study the Bible. And they'll be like, well, you know, the Bible's great, but we want some experiences, so they get in kind of the experience kind of mode and then, then experience mode, mode gets kind of weird. And they're like, oh no, we should get back to the Bible. And then they get back to the Bible. I'm like, it'd be a lot easier if you just stuck to the Bible. Just teach the Bible that it has power. John 15, three, now you are clinging to the word that I've spoken to you. Something happens when we come in and allow God's word to be read and listened to and studied. Just bad stuff gets cleaned up. Minds gets renewed. It's got a power to it. Romans 10, 13, 17, excuse me. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. Like, oh, I want more faith. Great. And maybe my favorite, it's 2 Timothy. I'll read it for you. Chapter three gives us the details on what God's word accomplishes in the believer. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching what's right, for reproof what's not right, for correction how to get right, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the power of the Bible. I think we're supposed to love scripture. So when you come here on a Sunday, whoever's teaching, we're gonna open the Bible and study it. You come on a Wednesday, whoever's teaching, we're gonna study the scripture. That's what we're going to do. We're not gonna focus on the latest movies or this program or that program. We think studying God's word is really important. That Jesus scolds these guys for not knowing the Bible. Now, I might make you feel bad, but I think these Sadducees walked away from this conversation and they didn't feel so good about themselves. Jesus scolded them. We're supposed to know the Bible. If we have enough time to watch Netflix and uh, be on Instagram and be on Facebook and watch the 7,000 season of breaking battle, whatever it is, we have time for God's word. It's just a choice that we're making. We're supposed to know God's word. And the Bible says this, if you read it, you're blessed. You ever seen people on their phone? Are they being blessed? Like they look like zombies. It's like, ah, oh, drool's coming out. I don't know if Instagram is blessing you, right? I don't know. I don't have it. But I know this, God's word does. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your heart kind of messed up right now? God's word, it'll straighten me out. I can tell you time after time, how many times I've just been reading through the Bible and what I needed, because I was messed up in my heart. Oh, that's it. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God's word. But then on the other side, God's power. And what I've noticed about church is this. I mean, church, since I was pretty much, I was born in the nursery and my first words were Jesus, all right? So been in church my whole life. 
What I've noticed about churches is they're often either good at God's word or they're over here and all about God's power. Have you noticed that? Like it's, it, the balance never seems there. It's like one giant leg on one side and then a scrawny leg on the other side. And because of that, it's like you can't quite walk straight. And they always like seem to get off somehow. Like the real Bible churches, they end up getting nitpicky. It's like your doctrine doesn't exactly follow our doctrine, so you're a heretic. And often what happens is the focus gets narrower and narrower and narrower on what they want to teach, and it comes down to the epistles of Paul, and that's it. And they seem to ignore the rest of the Bible. And the verse that they, it, this is what cracks me up. The verse that they give for studying the Bible is 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What scripture was Timothy supposed to study? Because the New Testament didn't exist. The verse they use is saying, study the Old Testament, because Jesus is there too. Like, it's amazing to me. But it's like, that's the focus, get real nitpicky. But on the other side, you got the, all right, experience, God's power side, and they often get a little strange. It's like, come in here, and it's the three little pigs. We're gonna huff and puff and blow you over. They seem to buy their anointing oil at Costco and they wanna just cast the demons out of you and anoint you with oil the moment you walk in. And there's flags and it's experience and the experience always seems to get more and more and more. I had a dream. Well, I had a vision. Well, I was caught up into heaven. Well, I was abducted by angels. Okay, whatever, right? It just seems like that happens. Like so nitpicky and then on this side, sometimes it gets a little nutty. So I read this, and I thought, where's Edgewater? I think we're more of the God's Word side. And I love God's Word. And I'm always going to love God's Word. And I'm always going to want to teach God's Word. But it convicted me. Is that because there's a Sadducee in me that says, it's a lot safer when you stick with God's Word? There's risk. And there's danger when it talks about God's power. Is it because we want to stay pretty? You know, Bible churches are pretty. Is that why? Am I afraid of danger? Because all of us have a desire to be close to God, close to his beauty, close to his power. But I think most of us realize this, the closer you get to his beauty and his power, the more you're going to lose control because God is in heaven and he does what he wants. And if you're gonna give yourself to God, that means you're not gonna be in control anymore. And we fear that. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what he might ask me to do. And so we fear it. And I gotta be really honest about scripture. I love it. It shapes the Christian in the kind of person he's supposed to be. We just read that reproof, correction, instruction for every good work. But here's the thing. I can't go to the Bible and find a verse that says, marry this person. And that's a huge decision. I can't go to the Bible and find a Bible verse that tells me, do this career, which is a huge decision. I can't find a Bible verse that tells me, hey, move to this city, which could be a huge decision, right? Like huge decisions, I can't find a verse for them. So what do we have to help us? Well, Jesus told us, 
hey, don't be worried because I'm gonna give you my spirit and my spirit's gonna teach you and train you and guide you into all kinds of truth. And I read that, I'm kind of convicted in my heart. There's a Sadducee in me. And so I think, what is it? What am I missing? What am I not doing quite right here? Because I think there is a balance. Like there's always a pendulum, right? You're always like swinging, like God's word over to God's power. You know, at one point you're like, I got it, but you're already swinging out. Like, ah, yeah, right? That's life. Like there is strength in tension. The more, the older I get, the more I see in the Bible, there's strength in this tension where you're just like almost being torn apart by two opposites. That's where the strongest point is. Where you just, ah, these are two tensions and it's okay. That's strong, like a tension bridge. That's strong. And so I just wonder like, what do I miss? And maybe it's the expectancy that like Pentecostals and Charismatics have. Because I got good friends that are Pentecostals and good friends that are Charismatics. And you know what they do? They expect God to work. They pray for God to work. They live like God's gonna work. And guess what happens? God works. And I'm like, what in the world? How'd that happen for you? Well, God just did it. What? Right? And there's a part of me that says, what? Huh. I wonder if God just says, Matt, you don't really expect me to work. So okay, I won't. The guy's not like, oh no, Matt doesn't believe in, he's not worried about it. Hey Matt, it's okay. I just wonder, do I have expectancy for God to work? Do I want him to work? Or is there a Sadducee in me that's like, nah, I like things like the status quo. I like them safe and pretty. Now that's risky and dangerous. It's convicting to me. So if you're a prayer, here's what I'd ask you to pray. That for leadership, for me, for the pastors here, that we balance these two well. God's word and God's power. That we embrace that tension between those two. Expecting him to work. We embrace it well. And then number two, I've been praying this for myself. It's a simple prayer. I just added a line to it this week because of this. And my prayer has been this. It's been for months now, Jesus, I wanna be an ambassador of your kingdom to this community. I wanna be a good husband to my wife. I wanna be a great dad to Carissa and Bella and Gabrielle and Elijah and Myron and whoever else might be in my home. I wanna be a good neighbor. I wanna be a good pastor. I wanna be a good community member. And I know I can't do that apart from your spirit. So fill me and empower me and help me to live today in expectancy of your work in my life today. Amen. And that's what I've been praying. I wanna be expecting God's power. And I wanna see Grant's past changed because you know what Grant's past needs? God's power. That's what it needs. Drug addicts need, they need God's power. That's what they need. So I wanna pray that way. Join me, let's pray that way. That when we get to heaven, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you were great at the Bible. Man, you just didn't believe my power. I don't wanna be scolded. I wanna balance these two well.
And as we go to the table, the same truth is of communion. Like there's a tension in it. That you and I, we can take communion. And communion can just be, I can't call it juice, liquid, whatever this is. And whatever the other thing is, it can just be that. A calorie or two, and you take it and you leave. But I think there is actually a way to take communion that has power in it. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 11 about communion, they were doing communion wrong. And what does the Bible say happens to people that were doing communion wrong? They got sick and some of them died. Man, that is a gravity section. They did communion wrong and because they did it wrong, there are sick people and dead people. Whoa. Now, if that's true about misusing communion, on the other side of the tension, shouldn't there be unbelievable power that happens when we take communion correctly? Oh, I think so. And so Jesus today, as we hold your body, We, like John the Baptist, say, let us decrease that you might increase. We need your power. Would you enter into us and give us power today? And let's eat. And we hold the cup. are the only one that can take the sins that own us, the cancer that's destroying us, and put it into remission. You're the only one. And so this day, we have heard God's word. And we pray for God's power in our life the sins and the weights that so easily beset us, we pray today as we drink, you would put those things into remission and set us free. Let's drink of cleansing. Amen. So we'll sing a song. After that song, you can be dismissed. But if you want prayer, there'll be people that will be up here that'd love to pray for you. Nothing too big, nothing too small. Come get prayed for. If you want to be baptized, today will be a great day to be baptized. If you want to be baptized right over here, Ev will be standing right here. If you have questions on baptism, you can ask him. These waters of baptisms don't save you. They're from the Rogue River, right? They're not holy water or nothing. They got some chlorine in them and that's it. Jesus saves you. And then he says, as your king, publicly identify as a part of me in baptism. And that's what we do. We obey our king. So if you want today to be your baptism day, come talk with Ev. Would you stand for one final song?